This is Future Heist, conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve Smith. Why you gotta do me like this? I'm Tony Sullivan, Dr. Tony Sullivan, and um, I'm a senior lecturer in cultural and historical studies at uh, London College of Fashion, um, where I have been um, teaching and researching uh, the relationship between fashion and society uh, as part of the Department of Cultural and Historical Studies for the past uh, about 13 years. You've contributed a chapter to a book that's coming out in the summer. Fashion and Politics, edited by Nadira Bartlett. Um, fashion and Politics, you'd think that that book would exist already or that there would have been a lot of research done on that. Can you tell us about the need for a book like this? Mm. Well, I think um, it is a very interesting question and a very interesting relationship, the relationship between fashion and politics. And you're right, it is a surprise. It's a surprise to me um, that there isn't specifically um, a title uh, in already in existence like this, a book on specifically on the relationship between fashion and politics. So, you know, this book really does address um, a real gap uh, in knowledge um, and a real gap in, in, in research. Um, this doesn't mean to say that people haven't written about and researched the relationship between fashion and politics before. But I think, uh, and I can talk a little bit about that, um, but I think what's really interesting about this book is it really explicitly does try to engage and to interrogate that relationship between fashion and politics in lots of different ways. In terms of um, wider politics and political uh, movements, in terms of particular uh, garments, um, in terms of particular cultural and historical uh, moments. So um, yeah, it's definitely um, a surprise, especially really when you th consider um, that there is, in many ways, very little um, about aspects of our dress and, and, and fashion more generally, which doesn't have some kind of um, political dynamic or some kind of political um, element to it. And one really uh, key example of that for me is to just think about the reasons why subcultures emerge, for example. And there, there's a huge literature, there's a whole, a huge body of writing uh, from the cultural studies tradition so um, people might be aware of writers like Dick Hebdige and his very iconic uh, book, Youth, Subcultures, The Meaning of Style, written in the late 1970s. And there he said something really, really fascinating and really interesting. He said that, you know, subcultures emerge really in, in class societies and from class experience. And subcultures like skinheads, like mods, like punks and so on, really emerged as a form of imaginary, imaginary, um, resolution of systemic class and political contradictions. So it was literally through the materials they had to hand through their clothing, makeup, their hair, their style, styling of the self and the body that young uh, teenagers in particular in the 1950s onwards really with the post-war uh, boom both economically and demographically with the rise of the teenage population in the late 50s in particular that teenagers, youth began to really explore and express their reaction to a very constraining and destructive class society, capitalist class society, through the, the manner of their dress. So yeah, it is very, very um, much a book that's very much needed, but it, it does build on um, you know, writing that already exists, but perhaps isn't so explicitly framed 
as being about fashion and politics as such. I mean, the question of subcultures is, is really interesting. You can see the way that resistance happens in clothing and often is then subsumed back into, into commerce by the, by the wider system. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the chapter that you wrote. Yeah, well, um, my, my chapter is called Dressing the Opposition, Sartorial Resistance on Europe's Political Left. And, you know, I was thinking about this um, as I reread the chapter on, on the train on the way, way into work today. And I guess there's kind of three kind of major kind of dynamics at work within that relationship between fashion and politics. And one is the, what individuals do individually um, and how they use fashion and styling, the body, all, all aspects of dress to kind of negotiate and, and create an identity for themselves, which is often, you know, quite resistant to norms culturally and politically and socially, but not necessarily, but often, you know, can involve transgression of gender norms, say, for example. But then there's also a group collective um, um, uh, dynamic at work. We just talked about uh, subcultures here in particular, people dressing alike to signify their collective identity but which also again often had an element of resistance to state authority norms and stereotypes but then there is this wider thing the kind of more overtly and directly political um, use of fashion and dress um, to express um, political views to articulate political uh, opinion and where you stand politically on the left the center or the right and that's where my chapter comes in because what I was really interested in um, with my chapter, is to look at how the left has re-emerged um, in Europe from really um, their ex the experience, the wider experience of austerity and the kind of crisis of neoliberalism that followed um, the 2007 financial crash and how in particular, I mean, you can't, you can't look at everything, but the three, are the, the three areas that particularly interested m me was what happened uh, in Spain with the Podemos party, which was a realignment on the left and the growth of a new radical populist party um, led by uh, Pablo Iglesias, um, Podemos, but also then in, in, in Greece in particular um, with Syriza, again, the growth of a, a brand new party on the left, which really, um, you know, broke the hegemony of the old established political parties. Um, and again, under the leadership of Alexis Tsipras and Yanis Varoufakis. And finally, here in Britain, um, somebody who, in many ways, um, you know, is seen as the archetypal left-wing scruff, who doesn't care about his appearance, Jeremy Corbyn. What was the relationship, and what is the relationship, between Jeremy Corbyn's um, ascendancy, despite massive hostility um, from the establishment and mainstream media. Um, what was the relationship between his style, his particular way of dressing, and um, his, you know, it has to be said, successful attempt to actually uh, become the leader of the Labour Party, and a Labour Party which is now avowedly anti-austerity, um, and a Labour Party which has really shifted from that former neoliberal ground that was so it was so firmly set in by the leadership of Tony Blair. So I'm really, I was really interested in, in that third part of the relationship, I think, the kind of relationship between official politics and fashion, but how fashion could be used as a kind of uh, a tool here, as a kind of resource to really start to underpin the kind of political challenge that um, these three ascendant or insurgent left political parties in Europe 
um, had really uh, put, uh, you know, put, uh, set, uh, set in motion. So that's really where I come in with, with, with the book on, on Europe's political left. It really focuses on the relationship between the style of those three sets of leaders and their parties and, and, the, and the success that they have enjoyed um, politically thus far, although without problems. Of those three then, yeah. did you find that there was very different things going on between Spain, Greece and the UK? Or is there some similarities? Yeah, I mean there are there are similarities and there are differences. I think what's interesting is in, in many ways is the degree to which, um, for example, if you compare um, Jeremy Corbyn's style, um, it's very much an anti-political fashion style. Um, but it's one that's emerged really um, kind of organically uh, from a, with a look that he's basically held on to, a style that he's held on to um, for decades. If you contrast that, say, for example, with what happened with, in Spain with Podemos, uh, with the way that Pablo, uh, Pablo uh, Iglesias um, dresses himself, I think there you see it's something it's much more of a conscious part of a conscious strategy a political strategy, a strategy, a wider populist political strategy, um, which means that he, you know, dressed in a way which served to consciously try and build a kind of popular opposition, partly through his political, st his style of dress as a political statement. Whereas I think with Corbyn, it's been a much more organic kind of development over decades and a refusal really to budge from a particular style that he's adopted. Um, in the case of Tsipras uh, and in the case of Varoufakis in Greece, again, it's, it's, it's very interesting. In that case, again, you have things that were quite... With, with Cyprus, for example, one of the key things about him is he refused to wear a tie, Alexis Cyprus. Now, that refusal to wear a tie was partly because he just had a real reaction to wearing things around his neck, around his neck, so he had a terrible neck rash. So what he, but what he noticed was that that thing about not wearing a tie became, and I point this out in the chapter, a very visible signifier of, if you like, a break with the old way of doing things. So it became a visual signifier of his break, or alleged break, because that's an important caveat, with mainstream neoliberal politics. Um, in the case of Varoufakis, I think there's more of a conscious element. So Varoufakis, who was Cyprus's uh, finance minister, and carried out those negotiations at the EU would dress in, in quite uh, ebullient, quite out, uh, outlandish ways. And I think there was a conscious uh, two fingers there, or a conscious sartorial defiance, um, in his case, of the conventions, really which have developed historically around the, the, the suit have been a sign of respectability and a business-like attitude to the world. Varoufakis in particular wanted to really challenge that hegemony of business and he did it in terms of his clothing as much as he, he did it in terms of attempts, at least we have to say attempts, to try and challenge the power of the Troika, you know, the three uh, major financial institutions of the EU, the World Bank and the uh, European Bank, that tried to uh, and unfortunately successfully have curtailed the radicalism of that Greek government, but he was trying to do something in his vestimentary form, in his dress, that really challenged the whole notion that you could only trust and only look at people who are dressed in a very narrowly, uh, narrow model, if you like, of, of the suit, which was basically fastidiously short hair, you know, close attention to detail in terms of the garments they wore in the suit, but actually the same kind of version of the suit that's been worn by business and has become kind of glo 
globally harmonic alongside the rise, hegemonic alongside the rise of neoliberalism over the last 20 or 30 years. So there are differences between them and there, there are further interesting things there as well to do with social media, which have also played a role in this. Oh yeah? Yeah. So, um, well, I think what's interesting here, I think, is that in the case of Podemos in Spain, uh, Podemos consciously used a, a YouTube news channel that they created called La Turca. And what they did was they combined um, their usage of um, broadcasts from, uh, from Iglesias um, as being uh, formally trying to put himself at the head of the Indignajos, the popular movement of the indignant ones, uh, in Spain in the late 2000s, the early 2010s, against neoliberalism, against the austerity cuts being imposed uh, in Spain by the two mainstream parties. And he, he basically was then able to use this platform, the Turca, um, to actually amplify and to take advantage of social media to broadcast that image of himself. And so I think that what he, he basically has been quite successful in, in doing, and again, there are real limitations to this, and I don't want to overstate the importance of the relationship between fashion and politics, but what he was able to do was he was able to project himself, if you like, as the kind of celebrity figure, or, or a, a figure at least who had the same kind of reach that we've become used to of celebrities, through that social media platform, through that YouTube news platform, and actually really, in a way, challenge um, the mainstream media at their own game. Challenge mainstream culture at its own game of, of dominating the news agenda through the self-presentation, really, of celebrity or celebritized politics. So I think that, that, that that's a very interesting instance. Um, things are slightly different, I think, in the case of, of Jeremy Corbyn. There... What I think played a role is the huge uh, new um, um, membership that the Labour Party has managed to recruit. And amongst these hundreds of thousands of new members, social media has been an important tool in their self-organisation. This is a new generation. Every generation that comes into politics will find a new way of you know, arguing and speaking its, its case. And I think here in, in that case, with, with, new, with the uh, rise and the ascendancy of Corbyn, they were able to, and I think this is very interesting, challenge the idea that Corbyn is somehow this decrepit loser. Because I think it's quite an interesting contrast to go back to what happened to Michael Foote, for example, in the 1980s. I mean, he was similarly vilified for his sartorial style. I mean, he was infamously, I think, you know, attacked because of the fact that he wore what was labelled a duffel coat to the, um, to the uh, Remembrance Sunday uh, reflaying way back in the early 1980s. Now, he was viciously uh, you know, attacked by the right-wing press for that. Now, the same kind of assault and the same kind of attacks have been made constantly against Jeremy Corbyn, but somehow they don't seem to have stuck. They haven't hit the mark, and I think that that's very interesting, and what one of the factors in that is to do with the social media, the co-created commentary with it amongst Labour members and Labour supporters who took you know, his appearances at mass rallies, posted them, very old-fashioned things, political meetings in town centres, posted images of him there at Glastonbury and elsewhere, and actually created a counter-narrative around him, I think which has really helped to um, underpin um, his appeal, and actually turned, you know, the kind of um, very disparaging, very snobbish, and very condescending, class-ridden, 
you know, narrative against Corbyn and the way he dresses into something that actually, the, in the opposite sense, was a signifier of, of his genuineness, of his authenticity as a political dissident, as a political outsider, as somebody who wasn't part and parcel uh, of the, the old mainstream neoliberal Labour Party. So, and obviously there's real tensions there still being worked through. But I think in the particular thing that I was interested in, was this question, well, why haven't they succeeded? Why haven't they been able to sink in? And they've tried almost everything, but particularly around the invective, around the way that he dresses. And it's, it's very, very interesting that they haven't been able to do that. And there are some other things at play there, again, which I think, you know, uh, are to do with celebrity culture. And that's something I think it's a curious and contradictory um, phenomenon. But I think that in a way that he's also been able to uh, um, take advantage of some of the changes politically that have happened because of this rise of this constantly mediated, totally visible political star that you know conventional politics has has uh, kind of evolved around for the last tw uh, twenty years. So I think he's been able to work through that in a positive way, though a different way I think too um, that. Um, uh, undertaken by, uh, for example, Iglesias with Podemos in Spain. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think that um, what strikes me about Jeremy Corbyn is, um, I was thinking actually about that mm. thing about Michael Foote and the way he was criticised for his mm. dress, because you certainly see the right-wing media criticising Jeremy Corbyn for being this kind of scruffy figure. Um, and it is very interesting sitting here talking, I must say, about the, about the ways of of male politicians dressing, because it's, uh, it's often female politicians, of course, mm. whose dress is analysed. But it's mm. true that they do have a, a style that plays a part in their image. Mm. And, um, and the other thing about Jeremy Corbyn, which I guess is something that's a relatively new phenomenon, but I was thinking about this idea of hipsters and this idea of like the, the, the urban um, middle-class youth today, or like, you know, 20 and something year olds, are, in, are very much into this authenticity in all things that they consume, mm. whether it's like coffee or mm. whether it's whatever. So in many ways, Jeremy Corbyn kind of fits into that trend, if you know what I mean, mm. and fits into that idea of something authentic. And I mm. think that um, I think that you're right in the sense that when people realised, or when people, sorry, learnt about him and knew that the, that he'd been campaigning on these issues for years, and there's that there's that clip, isn't there, of him being interviewed outside of the House of Parliament mm. Um, mm. from a few decades ago and he's wearing, a, the interviewer asks him where his jumper's from or whatever and he, he says that his mum knitted it for That's him. Right. It's that kind mm. of like, it's that kind of detail that actually um, people, young people now appreciate actually. Mm. Um, and so, and it, it contrasts massively to, to Blair and he was, I remember when he wore, I think it was a Paul Smith shirt that mm. had these illustrations of um, of women on the inside of the cuffs or something and he and he would wear those kind of the designer suits and things mm. and his image his left his image was very much of a left wing that you know was was friendly towards business mm. so yeah i think i think it's 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 really interesting this um mm. the way they played out and i agree that social media um and the image that that has in the wider world has yeah. a, has a massive part yeah. of it I mean, absolutely. I, mean, I think that is very interesting. And I think that, um, you know, one of the images uh, in my chapter is the image of Jeremy Corbyn being arrested at the anti-apartheid demonstration in London in 1984. You know, and of course, Corbyn, you know, at the moment is being attacked 
you know, for being uh, at the head of a, a supposedly racist party. Um, this is the kind of history that you're right, I think, that people are looking into for themselves and beginning to realise that, you know, authenticity is as much about sticking to a particular style as it is about constant change. And what he has there, you know, is a real lineage, both in terms of the way that he looks uh, and the way that he acts, which is brought together. And in that photograph, yeah, he is being um, dragged off by two uh, police officers. And essentially his look is not that different to what it, to what it is today. And I think that what's very interesting about this is, is though, something that, uh, that is quite interesting in terms of looking at the, the phenomena of celebrity more, uh, in more detail. And, you know, some of the media kind of theory around this is quite interesting. I mean, there's a guy um, called Dick Powers who's basically talked about how actually celebrity has led to what he describes as being a post-oratic culture. And that post-oratic culture is one that Jeremy Corbyn has fitted into. What he, what he means by post-oratic is because there's been so much exposure by the media to both you know, people's public and private persona, instead of people wanting some kind of super persona that is absolutely perfect, perfectly presented, always on message a la Tony Blair, a la the old New Labour Party, going back to uh, Margaret Thatcher and so on. Instead of that, people are looking for and actively investing in signs of people's humanity and signs of people's private self. So every time they show an image of him in his slider sandals or in an ill-fitting uh, tracksuit or in an oversized jacket, actually what they're doing is rather than attacking him, they're actually building up Jeremy Corbyn as somebody who isn't a contrived figure uh, in terms of his political self-presentation, his style, but is somebody who very much fits into a, a post-oratic celebrity culture, which positively has actually broken the whole aura around the celebrity, much as, you know, Walter Benjamin argued that the reproduction of the image would break the aura around art. So there's something, the, sac the sacredness, the, the reveredness around art. So when somebody like David Cameron, and you mentioned about, you know, um, uh, Corbyn's uh, appearance in, in you know, in relation to Michael Ford. When, when, when Cameron attacked Jeremy Corbyn in the House of Commons, and again, it's something I talk about um, in the chapter, and um, told him, ordered him, basically, dressed, dressed him down, told him to put on a proper suit, do up your tie and sing the national anthem. What he was actually doing was exposing the class nature and the class ridden uh, rhetoric that there is around dress and clothing and exposing his elitism in contrast to the everyday quality, the quotidian everyday man quality that Jeremy Corbyn embodied. And I think it actually worked in the, entirely in the opposite way that Cameron intended. He looked like this well-buffed or attempt to create this erratic persona, this politician. But actually, people have grown tired, with, tired of that formula, that formulaic approach to dress and the self and the body. And I think a lot of young people really Really identify with the fact that Corbyn has a style, has maintained that style. It has been modified. Let, let's not go too overboard. There are, you know, there's a tidying up of his look, you know, of his self-presentation. But you're right. It is absolutely fantastic, and I, I absolutely, you know, um, 
think it's really um, commendable that he had the, the courage to tell people about the fact that, yeah, that, 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 knit, that, that jumper that he was wearing, that sweater, in that Newsnight uh, interview uh, back in the early 1980s, which was an interview brought on because the Conservative Party then, in the early 1980s, under one MP, uh, Terry Dix, who was an arch-critic of parliamentary sartorial impropriety, demanding that they dress in suits and so on, MPs. Corbyn wore this brown casual jacket, a co-op shirt, and a, and a jumper knitted by his mother. So it's that kind of authenticity and credibility that this kind of post or that it's oddly and paradoxically the acceptance of that is a result of celebrity culture. And I think sometimes, more than sometimes, quite a lot, the left can miss out on the importance of these cultural shifts. It can really miss out on not analysing what's going on with celebrity culture, necessarily seeing it as always an enemy, necessarily seeing politics, or fashion rather, as always as an alternative to politics. It isn't that simple, it isn't that clear cut, and I think we need to do more on the left to really investigate critically these phenomena and not just rely on quite tired sort of formulas around them. I mean, that's the thing, and, and, and fashion and politics has a kind of, um, is, is misunderstood, the relationship between the two is quite misunderstood, and um, I've been thinking a lot recently mm. about how, some, and some people think that they exist in a world that isn't affected by uh, fashion, but I think mm. that we both mm. understand that mm. actually fashion permeates the world in so many ways, not least because clothing is integral to mm. a part of of kind of presenting oneself mm. um, and so what do you think of the notion that I mean can fashion ever be apolitical does um, fashion always have a political point of view I mean again I think we have to be um, uh, a bit circumspect about overclaiming or underclaiming the political nature of fashion I mean I, I would I would put it in a kind of broad the context of a broader argument I think there's actually very I don't think there's anything in our lives which isn't fun, which isn't political but the degree of, you know, the level of politicisation of each cultural phenomenon or, or each part of our lives is, you know, more or less um, explicit. It's perhaps sometimes it's more implicit. You know, so I don't think that most people, you know, have a conscious, always a conscious thing about their style in relation to um, its political meaning. I don't think that at all. But I think, nevertheless, we have to look very carefully at what are the most uh, you know, easily accepted, the most common sense things in our lives. And I think there, you know, I think the French um, social theorist Roland Barthes, you know, talked about the most ideological things. He talked about them as called doxa. The most ideological things, the most ideologically challenging, or possibly even if you think about it in some ways dangerous things, are those that we don't think critically about. And I think there's a very easy um, uh, trap to fall into with dress, which I think is, at the moment, a much greater trap than not thinking about it politically, is not to see its political dimensions. And for me, you know, um, teaching um, at a fashion college it's absolutely critical, our sense of gender, for example, is absolutely unthinkable without and unrealisable without the dress and bodily practices that we engage in. And that's something that I've really learned from my experience, you know, with uh, teaching fashion students and 
teaching and uh, critically around the relationship between fashion and identity. So that, again, I go back to that thing about maybe there have been three levels of this, but I think that so some of the most important facets of that political relationship are often you know, quite, quite unconscious, they seem quite sort of everyday and unthought of, and it's, it's things about bodily practice. I mean, you know, you mentioned about hipsters and the way that, you know, the beard and, and certain shaving practices. How important are these to that sense of that hipster masculinity? If, you know, but how important is it to us? To our understanding of you know our gender, whether we shave certain parts of our body under our arms or not, under our, our legs. This is all about fashioning the body. And to really miss that is, I think, really a problem. And I think we need to say more about that relationship. Because I think if we speak about that relationship more, then I think we will draw in um, those of us who want to, want to, you know, kind of bridge. The, there is a gap, I think, to some extent between academia and activism. If we want to bridge that gap, we need to talk about practices that especially uh, those who feel uncomfortable about the constraining effects of ideologies and discourses around gender and sexuality have. We need to talk about clothes and we need to talk about fashion in the body, shaping the body in all its many aspects or else we won't talk to those people. And those who want progressive change will find themselves talking uh, in, a, in a dead way about a whole load of theorists who uh, whole generations will regard as, as irrelevant, when they shouldn't be seen as irrelevant because they have a lot to say about the body. And, you know, I mean, even Marx himself, um, even Karl Marx himself, you know, I think really understood the symbolic value of dress. And he understood that symbolic value of dress, the fashionable value of dress, because he found it, when he was writing, reading and researching for Capital, he found it impossible to get into the British Library unless he was wearing his suit. But he was caught in the dilemma which is faced today by so many of us, by precarious workers. He was a precarious worker, he was a journalist, who was a part of what might be called a gig-based economy, he was paid for articles. He continually had to pawn that same suit in order to put the food on the table for his family. But when he didn't have the suit, he couldn't get into the library to do his theoretical work. So the relationship here between the material uh, nature of fashion and ideas, it's actually really brought home by Marx himself. You know, he understood that fashion had a symbolic value, that dress had a symbolic value. And I think we have to build on those kind of insights today and we have to address the politics of fashion and dress because, it, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, you've spoken about, in your column, about the, the way that the collective identity of those opposing Macron and neoliberalism uh, in France has been forged through the adoption of what people might think is why, why, why the yellow vest, why the high vis vest? Because it is a symbol, and this is what fashion is about, which both separates you from some people, the neoliberals and the part of the um, the gilets jaunes, from those who want to oppose neoliberalism and are forging a collective identity. And interestingly enough, there are those who are now wearing red scarves who want to oppose the protests against austerity and Macron's neoliberalism in France, they want to oppose that, and they are creating a common identity for themselves, again through the use of the, that, that symbolic value of dress and fashion, wearing red scarves. So we overlook this at our peril, 
and the relationship is constantly there, but it's it's more or less political. I mean, let's let I think it's, we should also say that you know there is undoubtedly a part of fashion which is about escapism. It is about fantasy. But then, at the same point, I think we need to be careful about dismissing fantasy and dismissing escapism, because you know those modes actually those ways of of being and those ways of creating things culturally have been at the heart of lots of forms of resistance over the over the history of humanity. You know, so people, in their attempt to escape, create create things, create forms, create cultures, which themselves offer the glimpse of a different way of being or a different way of doing things in the world than this narrow, confined, uh, such situation set up culture that we have un under under capitalism today. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, that's so interesting what you're saying. And, um, and I think to pick up on, on one or two um, aspects of what you were just saying, that thing about gender, I've been thinking a lot recently about the way that, um, partly on that thing of subcultures, the way that people can create their own cultures through style and can create their own opposition to the world around them through mm. subculture. And it seems to me that on the catwalks and on the high street, you see a lot of this kind of protest art, if you like, mm. or this kind of, you know, there's, there's ideas like feminism mm. and, um, and also gay pride and, mm. and, and the way things are being um, subsumed as well into, into collections. You'll have the protest T-shirt. It's mm. becoming a bit of a, a hot topic and mm. uh, a kind of something to, to wear and something to sell, um, which then leads me on to thinking about how capitalism subsumes the ideas that mm. we have doesn't it yeah. um, and, the, oh, yeah. and and ideas that are that are kind of germinated from the working class it, mm. it often subsumes these things almost to take power away from those movements and to mm. sell those ideas back to us so um, often these style movements will start out as a subculture but then they're sort of sold back to us as part of the establishment mm. and then I was thinking as well about this these ideas of gender, because there's a, a lot of talk, and rightly so, at the moment about um, trans rights and about mm. uh, people wanting to uh, confront this really strict idea of gender, which, as you say, mm. is absolutely tied up to how we present ourselves in the world. And kind mm. of that's how it, that reality sort of plays out. Um, but it's, it's funny the way that some protests are taken up by capitalism and by you know, businesses, if you like, mm. Uh, and others aren't. So, mm. for example, I don't know very many companies these days that won't show some kind of solidarity and support for gay pride when the time comes each year, which is great, that is a good thing, mm. but at the same mm. time, it sort of makes me think why those issues and not others. Mm. And it sort of goes into identity, doesn't it? And mm. it's sort of interesting the way that um, it's, it's changed without too much change. It's sort of this... Um, yeah you can yeah you can put on makeup if you're a boy but don't question your rights as a worker versus you know versus the need to create profit or or you know economic um questions of of capitalism absolutely um, yeah so i mean it's it's contradictory because there's, there's there are good ideas in there mm. but it's sort of interesting isn't it the way that um companies sell back certain aspects of change and certain progressive ideas mm. without without selling others. I wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's re really important to, um, to, you know, to, to understand, you know, the, the dynamics of capitalism, you know, and, and in many ways, I mean, this was, this was best put by 
um, Elizabeth Wilson in her book Adorned in Dreams that, that, that fashion basically you know is two-faced it's contradictory you know it faces both ways you know it's both you know about expression but it's also about oppression as well and it but it's because it's caught in that particular dynamic that makes it such an interesting thing so it can both be a, a very crude means to exploit all kinds of anxieties that people have about the way they look, about their body shape and size in relation to a whole series of very confining body norms, about the tone of their skin in relation to a whole racialized hierarchy of value, which is there, you know, as an historical legacy of colonialism and imperialism. It can both be there as something fashioned that will, as a cannibalistic commodity, a part of commodity culture is ready to pounce and to seek on any aspect or sign of difference and identification whether it was you know the fact that and this is a very interesting kind of story isn't it that low-slung jeans emerged because of the fact that uh, belts were taken away from uh, prisoners black prisoners in the united states you know for fear that they would hang themselves or use them as weapons so th the relationship between resistance and recuperation is something that the fashion industry is continually working with and it's continually at the center really of both a, a creativity but also quite a, quite a, an all-encompassing commodification of, of that creativity but we also again then have to be careful because what I think is very interesting is that the creativity still keeps emerging despite the commodification and that to me says something about the nature of of human beings and who we are and for me who we are fundamentally and again I would take this philosophically back to Marx is that we are about a species that can do something that no other species can do and that's create beyond immediate need or necessity and he, Marx spoke about this very uh, famously um, when he wrote about you know the relationship between human beings their species being uh, our species being animals so it, he said you know even you know the best um, of uh, bees can never create in the manner that an art architect can in relation to um, human design because we have the capacity to look and reflect back so what's very interesting to me is that creativity is at the heart of our species being we are cultural beings you know and because of the fact we can create beyond necessity i think the systemic kind of commodification appropriation for cult, uh, commodity reasons for commercial reasons of capitalism is always interestingly in competition uh, or is always in a competitive tension with that creativity of humanity almost anything and everything can be sold back I mean, we've seen this with the way that capitalism has even tr tries to and it is commodifying the global ecological crisis you know that's that's an interesting thing about you know selling on carbon quotas the trading carbon quotas between one government and another but what's also very very interesting to me um, is the way that, and I've taught a lot of young fashion designers, is that they are really genuinely very interested in the whole ethics of fashion. And they're very interested in trying to make fashion a more sustainable industry. But at the moment, that creativity and that desire for sustainability and an ethics uh, of design is held, is being held within this one particular system. And the priority of this capitalist system is not fundamentally about the needs of planet or people, but it is fundamentally about profitability. That does not exclude and stop creativity, but it continually 
it holds it, it constrains it and holds it back. So for me, philosophically, a really interesting question is what if you removed that system? What then would happen to that creativity? What would happen to the way that we dress and fashion ourselves? I don't see us all looking exactly the same. I don't see us all giving up on that creativity. I see it exploding. And that's what's really inspiring about a view of the world that I can actually understand this is one particular economic system. It's one particular economic system that in only a limited way encourages creativity. Only if it's competitively successful, it can, if, it's, if, if it can make money. We need a different kind of system, both environmentally, socially and politically. And I think that the seed is there, and that's always really excited me in looking at different forms of creativity. Here in particular, the creativity of designers in fashion. How much? We don't just wear shoes, for example. There are so many possibilities. Now, you can either see that as a problem, or you can see that at, you know, the glass half empty or half full. I see it as being half full. I think that's interesting. I think that's what humanity fundamentally is about. A world in which we can genuinely have individualism and difference. But I think to get there, we have to organise collectively to change that system, to get rid of that system fundamentally that's holding back that creativity. And that, that is, you know, capitalism. Brilliant. I think that's a really, um, it's been really, really interesting to talk to you. Before I finish on the last few questions, mm. I just wanted to ask you about how you got into doing what you do. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, well, that's an interesting um, question uh, in, in itself. I mean, I suppose, I mean, there are different ways into it. I mean, on a personal level, um, I became in, more interested in, in, in dress and fashion, like as many people did when, when they were in their teenage years. But for me in, in particular, I mean, I was in a band, so I played the guitar. So in our band had a very conscious style. I mean, when the, when, you know, we, were, we, we came from punk, which is that ethos of self-creativity. Three, learned three chords, recreated a, a look, a style, which wasn't that kind of stereotypical punk look, you know, but was our own interpretation of it. So there's that personal thing there, that personal kind of generation. But then there's also the thing about, you know, the kind of the thinking around fashion um, critically. And, and for me, you know, that came from, and I have to be very thankful for, um, the chance to be a, a, a mature student and to go back to, because I dropped out of the university the first time I went to it, but to go back to North East London Polytechnic as it was then and do cultural studies as a degree at North East London Polytechnic in the mid to late 1980s. Well, what, what, what that taught me, what that gave me was a framework with which to consider culture critically. But I wouldn't be uncritical of that framework because there is a tendency within certainly some um, aspects of cultural studies to just view consumption uncritically. I certainly don't, wouldn't agree with that. But what it did, what it did um, give, because we've already talked about that constant relationship between creativity and expression and then appropriation and commodification. But what it really did give me was, it was, was the beginnings of a, a framework with which to understand what a later interest, fashion itself, because I was fortunate enough to be um, to offer a, a job here at the here at the London College of Fashion, where I now teach. But I think what what's very interesting in that relationship between cultural studies and between the, the fashion um, uh, courses that I now teach, cultural and historical studies courses on fashion that I teach, is that I think what was missing 
and really fundamentally was missing from that cultural studies course was a, a specific that cultural studies approach that I, that I um, learnt on my degree was a specific focus on fashion. So fashion and looking at it critically, it's a fairly new thing. It was laughed at, derided when you talked about how, you know, there's been this sexism without, within the treatment, the differential treatment between male politicians and female women politicians, how that women were much more susceptible to arguments about their appearance. But there was also more generally within, within academia, you know, a, a looking down at a condescendent, to, a condescendent attitude towards fashion and to dress as something ephemeral. And I think what's been important for me has been to really to read about and to learn, you know, and to think through fashion as something that really is a part of the material culture of all of our lives and in that sense you know it touches everybody as you've said you know we all dress ourselves in some way we all groom ourselves in some way or not and because of that I think it, it, it's implicitly a very political experience and a very political part of our culture and um, so I came through it you know both sorts of personally I suppose as many people would but also through you know do, uh, doing that degree in cultural studies but then through really starting to think through some of the ideas those ideas much more in relationship to fashion but then also having you know an overarching Marxist framework here has really helped because I can just see the continuing application of a lot of Marx's ideas in terms of our understanding um, of fashion today, from the role of how surplus value is created to commodity fetishism, to the alienation, that blocking of creativity that we all have, that I've talked about. So it's a, a combination of things, but you know, really, yeah, it's personal, but it's also kind of wider and more political. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, fashion is often very, um, very personal and, and um, you know, it's kind of very emotive and um, I think most people I know who work in, in fashion in general have kind of very <laughs> personal relationships yeah. with, with clothing. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, just to finish off then, yeah. um, I always finish by asking guests three questions. Yeah. The first of which is, how can people support you and what you do? I mean, this book, um, Fashion and Politics, when's that out? Well, I mean, that book I think is out in early August. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, will be a, a really rich resource, you know, and not only for students, but for political activists, you know, more widely, because it, you know, discusses, you know, a range of issues and a range of objects and movements within fashion, from, you know, the uh, Chinese Cultural Revolution under Mao to the Kafaya and the way that the Kafaya, you know, became a symbol of Palestinian resistance, but has also, as we've been talking about, been commodified and become a popular, more popular mainstream, but also a symbol to some extent of resistance, political resistance. It, it, so that's one way that people could, um, you know, access and think uh, th these kinds of issues. Um, is to, I guess, to look at um, some, of, some of the readings and, and this book in particular, where, as I say, I have my chapter as a contribution to that. Um, but there are, of course, other ways um, that, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of thinking that I'm talking about, Marxist kind of a critique of fashion mm -hmm. that I'm talking about could be accessed. I mean, one would be to look at um, the very excellent uh, series of meetings which were recorded uh, and filmed uh, for Marxism 2018 and there I did a meeting which has been filmed and recorded and you can watch if you just uh, google it Marxism 2018 uh, Marx fashion and capitalism uh, with my name Tony Sullivan and, and you can look at that and think about the issues raised there there's an interesting discussion that follows that meeting too which has also been filmed and, um, you know, I suppose um, the other things are, you know, to look at, I think it's a really useful book. 
Um, again, I contributed the chapter called Marx, Fashion and Capitalism to it. It's a book called Thinking Through Fashion. Um, the publisher is I.B. Taurus. It consists of, I think it's 14 chapters on key theorists, including some of those other thinkers that I've mentioned, Roland Barthes uh, and others, but including Marx and the chapter that I wrote. So that's, that, that, that was published in 2015, Thinking Through Fashion, A Guide to Key Theories. Um, so it's about reading, but I think it's also about you know coming to and joining in discussions, critical discussions of fashion, of fashion where where we can. I mean, I know there will be um, some uh, meetings on this and looking at popular culture more widely at Marxism 2019. So there are plenty of online uh, blogs now, including this excellent one, which you can <laughs> listen to. Um, Future Heist. So yeah, that's some of the ways. Yeah, fantastic. Um, that's really interesting that you used to be in a punk band. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, um, more generally, is there, is there any film or book that's really inspired you and, and, and kind of thinking more generally? Um, well, for me, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a film or, or, or a book if I was thinking about my, my interest in fashion. I think for mm. me, you know, music came first. But I quickly became aware of, and I think that this is a very interesting kind of side story, that the two are very closely related, you know, that fashion and music were very closely related. That once you try to do things, as, as you know, I did and many other kids did, you know, teenagers in the late 70s, the early 80s, with music and getting access to music in a very accessible way, and you did something similar, you know, with your clothing, and you had a kind of cut-up um, kind of uh, customization uh, culture around fashion, which was particularly strong, I think, in the late 70s, the early 80s. So um, it came really to me as a part of that kind of milieu of punk. Um, but if it was talking about a spe you know, specific books that I would, you know, that have inspired me and the way that I've thought about um, these issues, and I'm still trying to think them through. And thank you for the opportunity I've been able to you know, discuss them here with you. But I think probably, you know, Elizabeth Wilson's book, Adorned in Dreams, is, is an extremely important and very lucid book, which really, I think, in many ways, uh, launched the whole field of cultural and historical studies, critiques of fashion. And what I think is so commendable about that book is the fact that, she, you know, for fashion, as I've said, she understands it's, it's contradictory. It's the child of fashion, but it's both something that's oppressive, but also expressive. It's neither one nor the other. Indeed, that, in many ways, I think, summarises, you know, the whole nature of culture under fashion, all culture, not just popular culture. And I think she really is, is a very useful entry point for anybody who wants to read and find out more critically about, about fashion and its history. That's a really good starting point. Brilliant, thank you. Um, last of all, the reason I started this podcast was because I was sick of having conversations with people which ended with, oh, there's nothing you can do about the state of the world these days. Mm. Um, and thinking more generally, do you have any tips for people who want to kind of um, get involved, especially thinking, I guess, about fashion and the need for change in fashion, because there's a lot of different movements out there about buying better or whatever it is. Do you think that there's a way that people can get involved um, and engage critically in the need for change in fashion? Yeah, I mean, I, th I, th I think that there is. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one way is through, if pe you know, people are interested, you know, in fashion and design, is to look at, you know, there is a situation now where there are many, many more courses um, which teach fashion, teach it creatively and critically, um, such as the, the, courses, the courses that I work on, um, at the University of the Arts, London College of Fashion. So there is, that, there is that academic entry point into it, but it's one that is very practically but also critically focused. 
And then I, th I think if you think about it, you know, within um, different kinds of uh, political and social movements, you know, fashion is an extremely important part of those political and, and social movements. I mean, we, you've talked about and we talked about and mentioned about the relationship between, you know, the breaking down of gender binaries and the experience of the, of the gay, lesbian and transgender uh, movements. I mean, those movements in and of themselves have really, you know, through the individual action, but also through that collective action, have put very, very central aspects of the fashioning of the self into the political mainstream. And, you know, it used to be the case that binary um, choices around trousers and skirts were so powerfully hegemonic and dominant that it was very difficult to break from them. But I think those movements, pride movements as festivals, I think movements um, around gay, lesbian and transgender uh, liberation have, through their very sartorial means of expression actually challenge the idea that fashion isn't political and that fun it can be fun too and it, and it doesn't have to be simply about words it can be about you it can be about the way you dress your body and it can be about finding allies in what you do through uh, social media which we've also talked about earlier on so I, th I think it's about looking uh, on social media it's about looking to see what's going on I, mean, I mentioned Marxism 2018 but there is this performative, there is this fashion, the dressed element to many of the current social movements. I mean, Rebellion Extinction, for example, what a fantastic symbol, you know, the use of uh, symbolism, semiotics in a really brilliant way to create a really distinctive symbol, that, that, that that's egg, uh, egg timer symbol around the earth, getting the point across and also carrying out all kinds of, of actions, die-ins and so on. These are theatrical, these are things to do with the body and these are things which involve collective sartorial expression in, in, in different kinds of ways. So, you know, I think there's lots of ways for people to get involved. Um, you know, I think there are older fashion ways, but there are newer ways. I think the key is to just try and try and look and, and look out for those who, are, who have similar concerns as yourself. Brilliant. That's a really good um, place to finish on then. Thank you so much for your time today, Tony. It was really interesting to talk to you. Okay, that was a pleasure. Thank you. Future Heist is recorded and produced by me, Rena Neve-Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassie, artwork by Fleur Beck, and sound editing by Simon Guy. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi and Joshua Lowe's Challenge. You can follow us or get in touch on Instagram at future underscore heist. Thank you.